You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Hello and welcome. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. You have joined us on another edition of Saturday Morning Live, and we have a full studio for you today. Joining me uh, in the studio to my right is Qudus Mateen, Shams Najam, and Mudabbar Khalid and we are with you for the next two hours and as usual for the first hour we will be covering different news stories stories that caught our eye during the week and in the second hour we have two topics that we will be covering the first one is AI something Kudus brought to the table he wants to talk about uh, artificial intelligence and he's going to delve into what it is well we know what it is but generally what Islam's point of view is and how it's rapidly developing across the world but then also we're going to talk about nhs and the strikes you may have well you should have seen it on the news it's everywhere junior doctors are striking teachers, um, teachers are striking actresses yeah. are striking there's strikes on everywhere so we're going to talk to a couple of professionals who will be joining us later on uh, for the conversation it is a live and interactive show as always so do call us have your say be part of our conversation 0208-687-7878 that's 0208-687-7878 or you can get in touch through any of our shows of voice of islam at voice of islam uk gentlemen it's good to see it's the first time that we've all been in the studio for a long time yes yeah it's oh, been a while so yes. normally someone's on the phone and like Someone's run into the studio. This time everyone's... <laughs> I think we're only missing Mr. Nasir Khan. And, and Shreib. I, I totally forgot. Yeah. Shreib's not come for so long, I totally forgot about him. He's a busy guy. Man. I hope you're listening, Shreib. Yeah. I'm sorry, Shreib Zafar. <laughs> I always used to call him Shreib Ahmed until he texted me one day when I was doing this intro. He said, it's Zafar. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, Shreib Zafar. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, good. How are you guys? Yeah, Alhamdulillah. good. Alhamdulillah. Not too bad, not too bad. It's a bit frustrating, this weather, to be honest. Like We're supposed to be in... Summertime. In shorts, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> do, you, do, you know, do you know what it is? You know, um, a few weeks back, I took out my garden set, which I'd put away last year. And since I've taken out, it's rained. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's you who brought and, the rain. <laughs> uh, yeah, honestly. and Because, um, you know, we had a small period where yeah, the, that's it was what quite saying, like nice. Two weeks? And, yeah. And then I took it out. And then since then, it's just it's been a bit cold or it's been a bit... It's like so. yeah, when you like you know when you take out the fan from like your basement or attic, yeah. you dust it all off, You're and ready. then you don't use it, <laughs> and then it starts raining. <laughs> it starts raining, <laughs> and you don't use it. Oh god, it's frustrating. Yeah, Do you know but, yeah. um one thing actually, I'm just kicking it off. We were I was trying to look at some news stories right, and um, trying trying to find positive ones, but all I could see is everything just negative everywhere. Mm. The issues in France. Sweden with the ground burning, um, you know, the strikes here. Um, yeah, just everywhere you just look, there just seems to be negativity at the moment. No? Yeah, no, you're right. It, it's very difficult. I always try to find, like, good news stories, uplifting news stories. And you're right, it's so difficult to... I mean, you can find them, but I'm saying that it's, it's difficult compared to all the negative ones that you can, if you compare them to how many they are and what's being given the limelight. It's all these Particularly negative now, I, think, though, I just feel like people are dissatisfied, unhappy. I think generally, I think there's more good in the world and there's more good happening in the world, but it's just news, bad news, negative news is always, it always hits harder. It's always one that people want to think, oh, wow, really? Oh, this is happening. This is happening. Death is always more 
significant than birth. It's always more like, oh my god, that happened, that this happened. I think that's the issue generally. But yeah, like on news, whenever you open the news, news is always going to be sensationalized. There's always going to be more negative news than there is positive news. Like mm. when I've been searching, you probably might find the same. When you search for, for positive news, which I've done a few times, or and even for this show. It's like a small section of the yeah. BBC or the Guardian or somewhere yeah, yeah. where it's just like, you know, you don't Something have, you rarely have many articles, but there's 100%, there's loads of good things happening around the world. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. just, um, yeah. It's, but so it sells, doesn't it? Hundred, exactly, that's it. it negative, it's it's about the financial aspects of news. Yeah, news. What, what gets clicked. It, it sells, basically. but also I think the... Um, do do you think we crave bad news? No, no not I, just I crave it. I just think you know the 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 bigger impactful things that are happening right, right now are unfortunately negative, like this cost of living crisis yeah. we're going through, and you know the strikes which are kind of linked to it, the, the, the stuff that's happening in France, the stuff that's happening in Sweden, like they're more impactful in that. Which Mo's right, they shouldn't necessarily be. It should be that there's a lot more good that's probably yeah. Yeah. impacting us that we don't recognise, but. What Thing it feels is, like with, is with the media as well. I think sometimes it's like you, you can't forget that it's a business, yeah, and mm. that it has to sell news. Mm. And it's, it, for us, we're looking at it as you no, know, we need to know what's happening. But actually, for them, they're looking at what will sell. So, mm. and that's the like you said, that's the psyche of what you saw human nature that we would be inclined much more to know negative, like okay, what's happening. But it's like, for example, when Pete in these days. It's like a uh, cancel culture. It's such a big thing. And the biggest fear is like as soon as someone gets exposed about anything, and that's, that's been in the news for the last week as well, something's happening on a broadcasting network and all of a sudden it's gone viral. And these matters, it's almost like someone's personal matters don't need to be aired out in that fashion, especially if it's a like a sin or someone's weakness. Yeah, okay, I understand certain punishments should be in place and they should be done in open so that the wider society can learn that this sin is not acceptable. Otherwise, the, there's no element of reformation because mm. once the whole world is now like your audience and you're being trialed in front of the whole world, it's so difficult. You can find it so difficult to rebuild um you know, from your past mistake. I want to ask something about this as well because I know this BBC thing, um, I, d I didn't know whether we should mention it or not, but then I remember someone also saying that certain sins or certain m mistakes shouldn't be highlighted only because it just is more in the news and um, sometimes people want it for attention. I just want to know from an Islamic perspective, um, should these bad things be highlighted and if they shouldn't, is it because it's a case where you don't want to put any like thoughts in people's minds or just that they just don't need to the thing is if you look at the um if you look at the wisdom behind punishment generally yeah yeah or reward these two things are the things that are the main drivers really you know? yeah i mean look uh, uh, maybe i should start in this way that is part of our human nature you'll find different people some people will do the thi uh, do a particular thing because it's the right thing to do, regardless mm. who's watching. Some people need some sort of encouragement that, look, if you do it, you'll get this reward. And some people might need an element of fear of that if you don't do it, this will be your punishment. Mm. Ultimately, it's to get the same goal. Now, with regards to punishment, the whole philosophy behind punishment is reformation. Yeah, so we have to allow or give someone the chance to reform. Unfortunately, what happens with social media these days is that the when it goes online or for example if someone becomes a meme let's say someone becomes a meme by something they've said or they've done they regret it but now the world will ne never forget it like this will smith slap for example 
I'm sure that's something he regretted straight afterwards. Mm. But that's that will never be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And because of the fact how obviously he did it on a world stage, but I'm saying the fact that people it would turn into a meme, it would always be at the back of everyone's mind if they mm-hmm. want to use it now as a funny thing. Meaning that every time it comes up, he might get triggered. Mm. Or so, someone who else has who has faced that or something similar to that might get yeah. triggered in that and way. And does it so, give him a chance to reform yeah, it? It's it? difficult because it's like, it's, I mean, I know you, you can take this case by case, but the reality is it's reformation. Like human beings are weak. Um, God says that as well. We're born with, we're not perfect. We're born with weaknesses, but God is very merciful and forgiving. So when you make a mistake, our inc- our heart is inclined towards reformation. And that's what punishment's there for as well. We don't, we're not, we don't shy away from punishment. I'm just saying it's the wisdom of punishment is to reform. But I remember the prophet always saying as well that preference should be given to forgiveness. So if that reformation can come from forgiveness, then forgiving is given priority over the um, punishment. So that I don't know if that answers your question. Or I went over it, but it's just that that's the thing with the media these days. That it's like yeah. what will sell. Like that, when someone records something, like for example, if something negative is happening, the general public's opinion or well, first reaction is to record it mm-hmm. because it might they might be able to sell it off to a tablet. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, it's yeah, but yeah, but now they don't even need to sell it to a tablet. Now just go be- away, right? they go on Twitter, they go on <coughs> social media, and that is it just spreads because mm-hmm. they'll just put it out on their. On their social media accounts And it just broadcasts it everywhere I I always think about stuff like this And it makes me realise Actually you know look As Muslims we Hear the word righteousness a lot yeah And ultimately it's living your life Knowing that God is is watching you God is overseeing you But ultimately now Where the world has gone to They don't have that fear of God But they have this fear of The whole world watching you and it's very interesting like some people literally they have this face there for social media they'll do certain things mm. no whether they believe in it or not they'll just do it because actually the world is a sensitive place it might go on social media i might get bad backlash i might even get cancelled mm. and it's it's to find the right balance that's what i'm saying it's so interesting like we always get told god's always watching god's always watching do something for the right reason even if no one's watching you god's watching but now that element, the social media is so powerful that people are more fearful of what the world thinks in that sense. Also, these guys have a have a sense of responsibility. I mean, we've seen, you know, various scandals now that are coming out. We saw it from COVID, you know, yeah. the released footage of certain things. And, you know, we're seeing it in uh, various channels across TV now where presenters or whatever it is, right? You wouldn't have had this years back. Well, we wouldn't now, have known. Yeah, you wouldn't have known. Yeah. So I suppose it highlights the element of responsibility that some of these guys have who are in, I suppose, that limelight. That, that COVID one hit me hard, to be honest. Mm. I, f- I found it hard to digest that, to be honest, especially when you see the video and it comes up again and again. Mm. I mean, every, the whole world went through something and people's sufferings, they varied. I mean, I'm not saying that we suffered lots. There are people there, when you hear their story in terms of like, like you said, death as well. Death is highlighted much more than birth yeah so for example when people passed away and they weren't given the right um you can say protocol with regards to well, families yeah. couldn't yeah, even like, attend like, their yeah funerals. like for example i remember seeing one where husband wife uh, lived their whole life together they were alone they only had each other when they passed away husband passed away uh, wife wasn't allowed to go to the burial funeral someone yeah, else such a yeah. bit there i saw this other case where it was like um 
yeah, just because uh, because of the COVID restrictions, a particular uh, mother, she lost her child because of the certain restrictions that were in place and because of how strict they were enforcing it upon her, that she wasn't even allowed to go check up on her daughter. <coughs> and because she didn't check up on her daughter, her daughter passed away. So like there, there are people who really, really lost out uh, mm. in this. And then when you see that, it's like, What's going on here? And then again, it comes back to Islam. Islam said many, many years ago, like 1400 years ago, that don't say something that you're not doing yourself. Mm. That's such a small, basic uh, teaching, but it's so like um, it's powerful. relevant yeah. in this situation yeah. that world leaders, or if you're a leader in any uh, capacity, it doesn't have to be on a world level, it could be on a local level, regional, national, whatever. But as a leader, you can't be promoting something and not be doing it. So you've got to practice what you preach. And there's some things that many, I many years ago. the responsibility, I mean, I'm sure we'll go into this a little bit later with um, some of the topics that we go into. But, you know, the responsibilities that are laid upon those who, you know, are sort of in charge of society, I suppose, governing society, is very heavy. Especially if you look at it from an Islamic perspective. You know, they and, uh, you know, our beloved Imam, uh, the fifth caliph uh, has mentioned countless times that actually there needs to be absolute justice when you are in those positions in uh, on every level. So when we when we talk about these things that have been leaked through COVID, that's not justice, is it? That's one one rule for you, one rule one rule for us, and one rule for them. Yeah. And that's <clears throat> when when that responsibility isn't taken so seriously. If we look back to the time of, um, you know, Hazrat Umar, um, the second caliph of Islam, correct me if I'm wrong, in his time, you know, he would go out in the night just to see his society, how they're doing, um, veiled sometimes, not, not, not to be seen, not to be known, but just so that he can see and hear if there are any issues and problems in society that he can try and sort of help with. I know we can't live on that level now because society is so large, but with the help of social media and this infrastructure that we have, it's not difficult to know the issues and problems that society are dealing with. But yet when you see those who are in charge and they don't have that level of compassion, mm -hmm. you can never be you, just. You mentioned Hazrat Umar and I'll just um, <clears throat> present an incident and it very beautifully um, expresses the point that you just mentioned, that when you're a leader, like you have that burden always on you that you're, you're answerable for these people. Um, There's an incident where at nighttime, like you said, he would very secretly at nighttime just go around his area um, just to see if everyone's okay, if anyone's in need. He came across this one household where a child was crying, like really um, not just the kind of normal cries, but it was, he felt the crying as well, that it was really bad. Something must be wrong. He went and found out, inquired from the mother. The mother said that, yeah, we haven't had anything to eat for some time now and my child is crying from hunger. Uh, but he then saw that the lady also had a pot on the fire. So he thought maybe she's cooking something. She says, are you cooking something? She says, no, I've just done this so that the child thinks that something's cooking and maybe in this in this hope, the child will fall asleep. So Hazrat Umar then like rushed around and he was gathering food together and he was now bringing a load of food to this woman's house and when one of his companions saw him naturally he's the leader he was the caliph at the time so it was like oh Hazrat Umar let us take this no no please you don't do this we'll do it no problem and Hazrat Umar said to him in reply that no you're, you're not going to be answerable mm. 
for this. On the day of judgment, when God asks me, I'm responsible, so I will do it. Because no other person can carry the burden of another. So that was the example. This is what I'm saying. Like He did that in secret, but it was because there was that element of a higher authority watching you. Now there's no element of higher authorities watching you. It's like the media is going to put this out. The whole world will react. And because nowadays when when you see, you know, like in France, you mentioned the riots. Like if something happens and the world finds out, not everyone reacts in the same way. Mm-hmm. Some people react in the right way. Some people react in a way that just gives them peace. And that might be actually, I need to case, cause chaos. I need to go into the streets. We need to riot. We need to do whatever we can. So everyone's different. Everyone has their own uh, way of reacting. But we have to come back to the fundamentals. I feel this is what I'm saying. The, the fundamentals of actually doing something for the right reason. I mean, we're all guilty of it, to be honest. It's like we all speed and then when we see a camera, we'll slow down. Yeah. That's the same thing. Like we all like are sometimes are guilty of using our phones whilst driving. But if we if we pull up next to a police car, we'll throw our phones to the floor. Like it's no, 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 the police is here. <laughs> it's just that real honest righteousness is regardless if anyone else is watching you, you have that in your heart that to God's watching. Right yeah. I think you know this whole thing about um <clears throat> being accountable and being responsible comes it's it's a lot deeper especially in our politics and western politics um and we've spoken about this before on this show um, and i've given the example as well that when it comes to leaders um leaders need to be going into their positions or be fighting for the position the thing is i don't think they should even be fighting for the positions leaders should not be fighting to be like oh i want to lead i want to lead i i need to take control i need to have the power i need to have the responsibility what we see in our community again this is an example that we've given is that whenever it comes to any sort of election we always kind of cower away we couldn't kind of hide not cower we hide because we understand and we know the responsibility and the burden that will be on our shoulders and that will be questionable and that will be answerable and that we're accountable for everything that takes place. Whereas these leaders, they think that oh, I've got the power now and they forget the responsibility. They forget the true responsibility. And it comes down to what you were saying, righteousness and understanding that they are not just answerable to God, but they're answerable to humans and to the people that they're actually serving. So um, yeah, Actually, that's spot on because then that causes the leaders to um carry out acts in deceit. Yeah, and 100%. we've seen that. Mm. Because they're in in that chase and that lust for power. Exactly. We, all, we do see you know multiple campaigns yeah. we've it's, seen. It's almost you know the word campaign is spot on in the sense that it's almost that like your time of service <coughs> basically you're doing something potentially not for the right reason but as a campaigning tool for your next election. <coughs> That's a lot because a yeah, lot of yeah. people they say a lot of things that if you if I come into power this 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 will happen. Mm. And deep down, like it sells, but maybe 10%, 15, 20% of that will happen. Mm. And even that happens because actually, when the next election comes, it's like, you see, I said this and it happened. Well, a lot of other things were said as well. So, it, again, look, we can't question anyone's intentions, but it's an element of doing something for the right reason, but also like it's a service. Like, as when you're in any position, you're there to serve. And we can't forget that. Uh, we're not there for ourselves rather we're there to serve and help make the area that we're overseeing the people that are residing in that particular area country whatever region look out for them um, but yeah it, it's, it's it's interesting i was gonna um move on to uh, an element of a story which i think you guys will find quite interesting um an article in the al-hakam 
uh, written by Asif Arif, uh, who's an attorney um, in Paris at the moment, I, I believe. The you know the riots that we've seen in France, uh, the issues with the actions of police and the response from society. There's, as, as I said, I want to talk about one element of it, which is Macron sent out a statement that actually he's uh, either Macron or someone from his sort of party. Um, I believe it was Macron that the riots and the violence he attributed part of it to the parents. Right. It's really interesting, actually, because of the, the Western society that we live in. So he says, um, you know, partly due to blame are these parents who fail to take care of the children after a certain time. And parents were responding by saying that actually the government has substantially restricted their rights of correction towards their children. And we see that even in this country, right? Um they're not allowed to discipline or educate their child in the manners that they may have been able to 15, 20, 30 or whatever odd years ago. Um, and now if they do so, child <coughs> children are taken to sort of social services and um, now it feels as if, you know, the responsibility of the children are in, is entirely in the hands of the state. So I just wanted to get you, your thoughts on that because... I think often individually maybe or sometimes in passing we've probably had these discussions that actually whilst it's an amazing tool and the government do a lot and we have these social services our children are way too free to do whatever they want without parents now being in a position that they can actually enforce some sort of law or rule because children can go to social services and 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 me personally you know, I've always felt that actually the way kids are disciplined or the, the level that they're disciplined at now is clearly lower than it would have been, you know, many, many years ago. Um, you know, where where, where, where the, the, a slap or a bit of a beating was the norm. But I feel like there, there was some sort of benefit to being able to discipline your child to a level which you feel as a parent, because you're spending the most time with your child, was necessary. Seems as if the government or, you know, have taken that out of the parents' hands. And so now kind of feels like it's a free-for-all for youth, whether that be on social media, whether that be, you know, physically out in public, whatever it is. I just wanted to see how you guys... It's interesting because, look, uh, it's two different things. One is being strict in your discipline. Hmm. And one you mentioned beating a child. For hmm. example, that was a tool that was used previously back home. Um, maybe our parents or their their parents would probably discipline their child in a physical way the promised messiah the founder of the Hamdi Muslim community once said that actually you should never beat your child because what you're doing by beating your child is putting the fear of you in them and as Muslims we don't do that in the, like we our whole first 20 minutes we talk about having the fear of God in your actions because the moment even as a child if you put it in their mind that fear me then ultimately that's what it is fear society because when someone's watching you and you can get in trouble, that's when you shouldn't do something wrong. And it should be from a young age. That's why we say that, look, teach your child, encourage him to read prayer or her, the child to read prayer when they're seven and be a bit firm in your approach when they're 10. We're trying to install, instill the love of God into them. But on that same merit, I came across this uh, very interesting clip from the fourth California community where he was mentioning how... He's used the word mercy. He goes, sometimes as parents, 
we show mercy to our children. But we don't realize that that same mercy can become the biggest issue for us because it has such an impact on their character and their um, upbringing. And he gave an example of, for example, when you have a child and that child, let's say it's your first child, and you, you see that child causing mayhem at home. Yeah, Some parents out of their love and mercy will be like, oh, my, my child's just cunning. He's very intelligent. That's why like, he's messing yeah, about. Let and, yeah, let him go, let him go. And he said that that, that element of mercy is not mercy. Hmm. And he goes, that, that's almost... Um, negligence. Negligence, but that, that's the beginning of the end in the sense yeah. that when you let that happen, then these same children, he goes, it develops to now <laughs> your child is, you're not allowed to having anything nice in the house because they'll break it, they'll ruin it. It becomes a, a chore if someone invites you to their house because they now need to like protect everything and put everything away. He goes, your child becomes an issue in your own household. Then what happens when they reach a certain age of 10 to 12, they start speaking very rudely to their parents because you've always shown them mercy, but the wrong type of mercy, where you just stood to one side and said, yeah, that's fine, no problem. And you've never taken stand. Then that same child becomes an issue in school that same child then becomes like he starts rebelling society as well. So he goes uh, that element of showing your child mercy can also, if not done in the correct way, correct way meaning that if something's wrong, you have to stand your ground. And children are like sponges; they learn very quickly, and they have they have different phases of their moods. So if you tell them, they might cry initially, but they will understand. If you don't. But this is the thing. I feel with parents, they need to find the right balance because you need a lot of patience to do this. Yeah. I think our yeah. parents just turned to like, back in the day, it would have just turned into do this, slap. no, slap. Yeah. Yeah. And then that probably would, fear, the child would be fearful mm. and they thought, yeah, we've done, we've done it. Yeah, this is it. Like <laughs> Now i found the tool to make this child listen to me. Well, yeah. that's not the case. Yeah. But just coming back to your point as well, just in terms of the state intervention, um, you sometimes, I, I mean, I, I, I look at it and I feel that the state has taken a proactive approach to interfere in the upbringing of children now. Um, I say proactive because before it was more reactive, as in you could go to social services or you could go to mm. outside organization and ask for help. Now it's more like, no, we are the, we, we as in the education system is there to educate your children. Your parents are just sort of there to follow up on them. Um, and, I, and and I think that that element is is very dangerous, where we can't discipline our children and and in a certain way, or the way we want to educate them, we can't educate them, or we're forced to so, sort of we're forced to educate them in a certain way that the schools want or the society want. Um, I mean, it just some th thoughts when it's, I when it when, which comes to my mind. It's, really, it's interesting, and because where, where this conversation came from, there's a prayer in Islam, Rabir Hamhuma Kamara Bayani Segira, that Oh Lord, show my parents mercy, as they showed mercy upon me. So this was the kind of uh, the His Holiness went into what mercy means, um, but he said one interesting point, which I just want to mention here, and I feel also in this day and age, we don't really. Where the balance is correct in terms of your roles and responsibility as parents, because he says that the the rabir ham huma, it's used plural format is used, meaning that the upbringing is not successfully done just by one parent. 
So, for example, in Islam, we believe that the male, the husband, is the breadwinner. He would provide and protect. And the wife, she would uh, look after the home and the well-being and the upbringing of the children. Now, we've all kind of spoken about how if you get the upbringing right, then that's they're set for life. So, essentially, that one role is probably the most important role. But this is what it is, is that it shouldn't just, it shouldn't be, and this is the issue as well. This is why some children, I see a lot of children, they don't have a relationship with their fathers. Mm. Because some fathers feel that, look, we're out, we're working. That's um, our only role. That's our only role. And when mm. they come home, there's no, they don't invest any of their time or effort to befriend their child. And it's just like whenever the the relationship that they'll have with their dads is like, the mum would, <laughs> the mum would use the dad as a fear factor. Like, you wait till dad comes home. <laughs> And then so the kid hasn't seen dad for so long and when he comes home it's like I've now got to tell him off and that's that's the side of the me that my son will see. So parenting is a combination of mother and father being present and it, again I feel that sometimes where both parents are working that too has its effect on the upbringing of the child mm. because you're not raising your child in key times like picking them up from school bringing them home making sure they're home Making sure that actually, what have you done in school today? Have you eaten? Have something to eat? Like these things, you need the right balance. And that's why I think it was like Islam presents that as well. But a lot of days in this society, it then this conversation goes somewhere else. It's like, no, well, why can't women, men work, this and that? So it's, I'm not talking about, it's got nothing to do with gender. Mm. It's got to do with roles and responsibilities yeah. in a partnership. And if yeah. you get that right, then your investment, which is your child, Will flourish, and it, and it and it and it inevitably goes deeper than that, doesn't it? It goes into, um, you know, the element of how a society should be run. Um, you know, for example, I'm bringing the cost of living crisis now. You know, there needs to be an understanding at such a larger scale of what effect that has on the upbringing of children, even yeah. um, because if you're struggling to make ends meet then both parents will need to work. And if both parents are working, then the time towards children is less. And so, you know, th there's a knock-on effect with everything. So Islam does beautifully present the solutions to this, but the society as a whole needs to be run in sort of, in yeah. tandem with that sort of understanding. Yeah, no, 100%. No, it's a very interesting conversation. I guess it's a topic that we can actually dedicate a whole show to. Mm. But let, let's move on. Uh, and I want to speak to Kudus, actually, because you had a very interesting week. You sent some... Very interesting pictures of you standing outside centre court in our WhatsApp group. <laughs> so how was uh, that? We were actually trip? standing inside as well. Oh, so, so you yeah, were standing we inside were, as well. No, we, um, no, Alhamdulillah, we we had centre court tickets this time, and we managed to to we, watch. You mean you, you and Chumps went? Yeah, me and Shams is uh, not saying anything right now, but <laughs> <laughs> no, we uh, we yeah we got to watch uh, Alcaraz world number one. Um, and we also got to watch Owens Jabeur uh, against playing against Elena Rabakani, which was the last year's Wimbledon champion. Um, no, it was amazing. I mean, the atmosphere. Just, just, just a general point on Wimbledon. I mean, if you, if we've been there before, but. It's center court is different. Um, you Do have the royal family there. Yeah. You had Biden was there. Uh, Queen Camilla was there. How, how close were you to them? You know what? Just on that actually. The stadium is designed in such a way that no matter where you sit, you can I, I always mean, that's, see that's 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 me basically hinting we're quite far. But no matter where <laughs> no matter no matter where you sit, 
the the view is very very good. Yeah, and, yes. and no matter where you sit, you can see the royal family. <laughs> okay, but, all right. Where's Wim- Wimbledon myth? Do you have to wear smart clothing? No. Well, no, I broke w- that myth. He didn't. Well, he he tried to. So so, <laughs> what you he wore on uh, what he wore at Wimbledon was the first time I've ever seen him like smart, almost smart. <laughs> so it <laughs> was casual smart. But he but no. Um, you don't have to. If you don't if you don't wear smart, I think. They just don't put uh, you on camera. You feel, how did they you don't feel cover it? you in the BBC. Just <laughs> blow you up. <laughs> I, I think because of the prestige of because yeah, um, everyone's you know, putting effort in of Wimbledon. They, they say in. yeah, nothing too casual, but as long yeah. as you're fairly smart. So but, um, what's what's the hype about world number one? Is it real? Because hype. On, no, I, I say hype because I, like, I don't know who I before he before he played this last semi final. Yeah. There's that Nadal piece. I don't know if you saw it where the yeah, Nadal yeah. was like, yeah, yeah. like it's. Bring no, he's going into yeah. In terms of record, record wise, and in terms of debut, in terms of what age he's he's like world number one, mm. he's definitely slightly better than Nadal, um, actually. And that's a big statement. That is a big statement, and I'll tell you why. Also, we watched him you, play. You mean at this stage? At this, uh, as in compared at, to Nadal, head to head at this stage. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Compared to Nadal at this stage, yeah. Um, but when we were watching him play. And there's no hype about this, yeah? This guy, so Alcaraz, is hitting winners at 100 miles an hour. And when we saw the ball, there was, like, on TV is different. But when you see in real life how fast that ball is going and the other opponent not being able to hit it back, it's unbelievable. It's like, it's magic. It's like, how does he do that? Uh, how does he generate this power? But yeah, no, there's no hype about it. He beat uh, yesterday, he beat Daniel Medvedev in 6-3, yeah. like three yeah. straight sets. So yeah. beating Daniel Medvedev in three sets, straight sets, is not an easy task. I mean, Djokovic hasn't, I think, I don't think in the last game, Djokovic has lost against him why, three times. Why I think is Djokovic, sorry, my next question is, why is he, I mean, if you look at his record, potentially there's an argument you can make that he's the best to ever do it. Mm. But when you, like, for example, he was booed, like, in, in this last um, semi-final match. Yesterday, and he plays yesterday, that, yeah. And he plays that role quite well. I think he enjoys it. Like, he'll, if someone's booing him, he'll start, like, giving it a bit back as well. So, it's like, whereas I never remember watch anyone watching Federer, and maybe, like, that's my favorite player, Federer. Yeah. And it's just something, is he had a class about him. Hmm. But why is it that potentially the best to ever do it is sometimes getting booed, sometimes getting cheered, what is it with him? I think to because to be the best, you have to have a certain character. I say to be the best, but to be one of the best, you've got to have a certain character and certain um, traits or certain personality that makes you stand out. Like Kugios, I think he's an absolutely incredible player and he's also got a certain character and personality about him. And even like what um, he got point, he, he got uh, penalised, didn't he, for making noises Penguins. or being... Yeah, exactly. Um, well, not uh, Djokovic. Yeah. Djokovic, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, we have to and, come back to that. Yeah, yeah, go on. And, and Federer, like you said, had, had class about him. There was a bit of suave about him. Like when you see him on pitch, even off the court, so not pitch, even off the court, he had a certain like, certain mannerisms, a certain, you know, his, 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 the way he carried himself was in a way that was like, all right, this guy is cool. Like, he's, he's, he's the guy. Yeah, but I think... I, I think, think with... <coughs> yeah, go on. I, I, th- I think with... Um, somehow, he's taken on the part of this role of the the villain. But I, I, I don't think everyone really follows that notion. He has broken all records. Um, admittedly, he... But yeah, still it feels like not everyone is yeah, on his I mean, side like Federer. Yeah, but but what you've got to understand is because he, you know, when it comes to COVID, 
he basically doesn't sing with the beat basically he doesn't dance with the beat he he um yeah. you know he he didn't take the uh, vaccine. the vaccine he's anti-vax he he stands his ground on some things and whenever you do that as a sports personality the media will use that to again like you said in the beginning to sell mm. their story but, but as a person he from what I see, he does carry himself with humility. That's sad, isn't it? Like, that's the thing. No one really, like, people that, like, for example, we're talking about him. None of us really know him. Yeah. That's mm. the bad thing. And I think yeah. with, with that, it's like, love him or hate him, you're going to watch him because he is that good. So, But yeah. also, also, there's there's this element that, look, Nadal and Federer, obviously, you know, 22, 23 Grand Slams. No, Djokovic has 23 Grand Slams now, the most Grand Slams in the history of men's singles. So I think people forget also that, I mean, there's this element that, so Federer was born and raised in Switzerland, right? Beautiful country. We've been to, if you've been to Switzerland, you see like, I don't think, I mean, I've never seen a homeless person in Sweden, Switzerland. I'm, you know, you can get, get me wrong there. But just in terms of the upbringing, not Djokovic's upbringing was in a war zone. I mean, mm. his country was being bombed at the time. Mm. Now, there is this element that obviously from his childhood, he's lived in a very different society. He's lived in a very difficult society as well. Bringing as a child, imagine, I mean, we can't even imagine that because we've never grown up in a war zone. So that is that people forget that element. The other thing is, I'm coming back to this. Yeah, go on. Uh, um, the other thing is, I'm coming back to the hindrance point. If you watched the match yesterday, there was there was no hindrance. I do I do not understand how the the chair umpire got got that point about hindrance and then it was time violation or something um yeah. uh in the same game in the same game and then people started booing Djokovic but Djokovic's mentality is so strong in mm. terms of even stronger than I would say Federer Nadal's in the sense that when people were booing him he just raised his level he yeah. just went up a gear. He's like, okay, fine. Okay, now they're booing me. I think I'm not going to cry about this. I'm just going to b- play better tennis. And that's what he did. And you, you, just can't, you can't beat that. There's I want him to win, to be honest. Like, I know I'm all for the next generation coming in and the youngsters. And it's been mentioned in Wimbledon a lot that these youngsters, everyone wants to beat you. But I really want him to win this one. How just many, because... How many years has he got on him? Like 15, 14 years? How old is Alcaraz? Like four, 20 years, uh, So Alcaraz is 20 years. And I think... Years, no. He's got 14 years, 15, oh. 16 years on him, 15 I, years. Yeah. Yeah. And has he already got the record, Djokovic? Or is yeah, if Djokovic's to, broken yeah, yeah. all records. Yeah. So Djokovic no, but there's, one, the there's, a Wimb- there's a Wimbledon record as well. A five think, in a row, is it? Five in a row? Something like that. that Sampras Fed, is five in a row or and something. Federer's yeah. got some, something similar. And I think he's on the verge of either leveling it or breaking it. And I hope he breaks it. Because I like that. I like you that know, mentality. Ultimately, when, when you're out there, going back to actually experiencing it, you really do begin to get a feel of the effort, the dedication these guys have put into the sport. I know it seems like an individual sport, but, um, you know, you can really see it. You can see it in every shot they take, you know, the dedication, the commitment that it would have yeah. taken. And they often speak about it as well, yeah. don't they? And, and and often in sort of individual sports like this, it's, it is difficult because it's it's just you out there. Yep. You know, in a, in, a, in a football team or a cricket team, you know, there's 11 of you. You can, one, support each other. One drop catch can be masked by someone else <laughs> dropping a catch. Yeah. <laughs> Me and John's got yeah. a lot of experience. <laughs> They're talking the, about yeah. experience. But you know, in, in, in tennis, you, you can't hide. In boxing, you, you can't, can't hide. hide. Yeah. You, you, it's very sort of an, an individual. And it's just great to see these guys, honestly. You, you Yeah, you see the glamour of these guys and they get paid a lot and whatever. But actually, 
there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. Yeah, what's your what's your verdict? Who's going to win? What's your prediction? Um, my prediction. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think that Djokovic will win this one. Uh, I think Alcaraz will give him a really really strong good game, but I think Djokovic will beat Alcaraz again, uh, like last time. Um, but there's also the women's final going on. Uh, yeah. We have the Muslim tennis player Ons Jabeur from Tunisia playing against Marqueta. She was phenomenal. She was absolutely amazing. Like the, the tennis she was playing and the, ra- the g- l- so she was she got frustrated during the game and me and Shams were there live watching how frustrated she was. Like you you couldn't see that on TV, but when we saw it live, it was completely different. But after that frustration, she somehow managed to get over the emotions and then she just played next level and she beat the uh, reigning champion defending of Wimbledon Elena yeah defending champion of Wimbledon Elena Rabicani so yeah no uh, i think i think she will do it this time in the in the women's single as well but i think back to djokovic definitely i think yeah i hope so i hope djokovic wins oh, yeah. it one more time but yeah keeping in line of sports um another new story that you've seen is with regards to heavyweight boxing uh, and you've seen that the two fights have been announced in the last week or so one um between Anthony Joshua and Dillian White which will be taking place in August at on the exact date but the second one which is quite interesting is uh, the WBC world heavyweight champion Tyson Fury he'll be taking on debutant boxer but previous champion in the MMA heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou now that's raised up quite a stir in terms of a people's opinions whether it's good for boxing bad for boxing um why is it that in the heavyweight division the best aren't fighting the best why is in other divisions fights are now being made Errol Spence versus Crawford has been made um what's his name Haney. Lopez versus uh, was it Haney no Lopez versus um Josh Taylor Josh Taylor was made um Garcia versus uh, Tank was made like all these good fights are happening in other divisions but in the heavyweight division for some reason the best aren't fighting the best so what's your thoughts on uh firstly this whole Ngannou versus Tyson Fury match that feels like yeah. an exhibition match more yeah. than anything it doesn't it feels like an exhibition match it doesn't feel like a serious but this is the weird thing because thing. <laughs> Frank's what's his name Frank Warren was like we before he announced it I mean the whole world knew what he was about to announce but it's like this is groundbreaking announcement like what we're doing is groundbreaking so everyone thought maybe it's Usyk like he's going to be for the undisputed but then it turned out to be Ngannou <laughs> so you're right it's like not there's no I've not spoken to anyone where it's like oh we need to watch that but to be fair though you know, I don't know if you've seen highlights of Ngannou but he can hit hard I remember watching once saying that um, actually Nagano has one of the hardest hit. Yeah, he's a Guinness World yeah. Record apparently. Yeah, 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 exactly. So it will but be slow, isn't he? Sorry, he's a slow boxer. Yeah, but I think I, for me it would be Fury wins that all day, purely just from a boxing. Here, here's my take on it. Realistically, yeah, it's like Jake Paul, who's a YouTuber, got into boxing a few years ago. He started fighting UFC fighters who aren't boxers either. 50 years old like. No, but I'm saying they're not boxers either. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first fight he had was with this guy called Tyron Woodley, who was the previous champion. He was yeah. in very good shape. Yeah. And if you looked at it as a someone who doesn't know much not about fighting, you would think, well. "Here's this guy, a kid, he's a young guy just picking up like boxing and there's a UFC fighter who's in amazing shape, who's probably been fighting his whole life. There's no two ways about it. He'll win." Jake Paul knocked him out. 
Yeah. Mm. Then Jake Paul found this formula of actually these UFC fighters, as much as they're good fighters, but just to rely on one skill boxing, no, nah, I think I'll take them. Mm. That if I didn't see this whole Jake Paul show, then I would look at this thinking, wow, this might be something. But because I've seen that and I've seen like a novice to boxing beating these UFC fighters and champions, like he even beat Anderson Silva, which mm. is an amazing fighter. That's why now I know the reality of oh Francis Sangano. Tyson Fury can end this fight whenever he wants. I think yeah, if he I, uses his skills, he will finish this fight whenever. Do you know he wants. what else I think is quite deceiving? It's when you think of MMA and you see MMA, you see that it is absolutely brutal. Yeah. You see blood. You see like ripped faces. You see swollen eyes. You see so much like brutality that you think whoever's in MMA is going to absolutely ruin a boxer because just of how gruesome yeah. and how brutal it is but then obviously in, in, in boxing there's a level of skill and technique that you can't have in MMA whereas MMA just it seems like it's just going all but boxers out. are used to being punched in the face yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time right yeah. so that there's a bit of difference like in MMA there's a lot of legs there's grappling, a lot of grappling then, yeah. there's wrestling there's everything yeah. but in boxing it's straight punches straight I'm saying. to your face that's and think, head isn't it that's why I think there's a little bit of a deception yeah. when people yeah. see MMA and you, they see the brutality of it they think okay this this type of fighting is a lot more physical than anyone that's, that, than any boxer and they forget that actually boxers get punched in the face for a living Yeah, and um, yeah it's I, too complicated I think it's the same the other way around as well so yeah I, be- yeah. I agree it, it, I, I don't enjoy it at all. I don't see the fascination with it. If anything, you know, to be a heavyweight champion of the world and actually have the opportunity to fight someone like Usyk and unify, you know, the five era division, which, you know, we haven't, five belt uh, era, we haven't had something like that since Lewis, right? And it's a huge opportunity for boxing fans. That's a That's a huge deal. And to bypass that, to go and fight, someone whose actual form of fighting is completely different is basically saying I'm me as a character I'm so big and him as a character is so big that we're going to make this amazing fight but actually we don't really care about the characters too much we want to see <laughs> the best yeah the yeah, best yeah, boxer the best fight the best, the best yeah. boxer this is why I think the UFC in the last 10 years like has over. just taken over yeah. because yeah. They've come up with a system with the best fight. They don't have a choice. You can't, yeah, you can't duck nobody. Mm. It's not up to you in that sense. There's no like, uh, okay, let me see where I get the best money. The best fight, the best. And that's why I think a lot of people, that's why as a business, I feel a lot of people are more inclined towards watching UFC now. But is it in boxing that you can choose sort of three opponents after winning your title or something? If there's no mandatory, if there's no mandatory, then, okay. For example, in this particular situation, if there was no mandatory, then it's fine. Like you can fight whoever you want if it makes sense and the governing body's okay with it. If there's a mandatory, so for example, if he had to defend, if the WBC said to Tyson Fury, you have to defend your belt against this person yeah. and he said, no, no, I want to fight in Ghanu, then they can, if they want, strip him of the belt. But that wasn't the case in this right. particular incident. Yeah. Will but you watch it? I don't know. It's, um, this is the thing. I remember Tony Bellew, Tony Bellew someone, not, not Tony Bellew, someone said, uh, would you watch it? I can't remember who it was, but he was asked, would you watch it? He goes, yeah, yeah, I probably would watch it, but it's no difference to in the way that I would go to the circus. Like, you go there just to watch a show. <laughs> and he goes, this is that same thing. Like, if I, if I wake up, it's, I wake up just to it's, be entertained. It, it is entertainment. Though. Yeah, yeah, but we, we not, forget that. It's not like we do, on the edge of your that, seats, like, oh my God. You know, like, for example, okay, so we watch boxing together, me and Shams. Like, when we watch AJ, and we're AJ fans, 
we're sometimes on the edge of our seats because of the fact that anything can happen. It's they're both fighting like for everything. They the know what's on the AJ line. With this, it's like yeah. with this, it's like as much as like Fury is amazing, he should like, unless Francis Ngannou pulls off a miracle and he will always have a puncher's chance. But I don't see that happening. Can I can I move on to something else within sports? Unless you want to make we've, a point, we've got a guest on air. Okay, so, shall we go through that and then yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, come yeah, on sure. to you? So um, we've we, we've got uh, Asif Hadi with us at the moment. Um, he's a docu- documentary filmmaker uh, on MTA, um, and you know, uh, for me, uh, some of the documentaries that I've seen that you know he's been involved in or directed, I'm sure you guys will agree. Have been game changers. Um, they he has an ability to sort of immerse you into what he's trying to sort of highlight and show you in terms of, uh, you know, we have a lot of sort of social media stars out there, and we have um, you know people who post about their holidays and influence whatever. But I think he really has this ability, unique uh, God-given ability that you know it, it really does capture you. And I think with his um, latest documentary. Um, it's called Bangladesh Beyond the Hidden Borders, um, and you know, with the inspiration and 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 the, uh, the love that uh, His Holiness the Fourth Caliph, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, had uh, of uh, this country, um, and, and we'll find out in a second. But I believe that was the inspiration behind sort of travelling uh, to this nation, and I would urge sort of everyone. Uh, to to go and watch this because you know it really is a real deep dive into the culture and 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 what a beautiful society it is. Assalamualaikum, uh, Asif Hadi, how are you doing? Waalaikumsalam, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you for joining us, um, and I appreciate you taking your time out. Um, you know, one one thing that really sort of uh, watching these documentaries that's something that you know I, I start questioning as soon as I'm watching it. Maybe it's my inability with tech or whatever it is, but I always think. There must be, you know, the amount of preparation that goes on uh, behind the scenes. But I just want to see, just want to know, how do you even begin to prepare, you know, uh, the, the the route that you took going through Bangladesh? And how do you even begin to prepare for something like this? And, uh, you know, I'll refer also to your basketball in Belize. Uh, there's a documentary about, you know, Japan. And how do you do it? What is it? What are the challenges? And, and, and what is it that gets you? sort of inspired to, 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 to start that journey? Well, first of all, thank you for having me uh, today. Um, I've listened to you guys for the past hour. I think it's a very good conversation you guys had. Um, I have a honest um, <laughs> confession to make. It's the first time I actually sat through a full Voice of Islam radio <laughs> session. So. <laughs> so I think it was really, really, really inspiring to listen to you guys speak so candidly. Um, so in terms of the documentary, as you mentioned, um, not to sound like a cliche statement here, but honestly, there's been very to no little preparation for each of those documentaries you mentioned. Um, so first and foremost, uh, Belize documentary. Um, the way that came about was I was um, stationed in Canada for a year, um, serving as um, the studio head to build a studio and create a team there. Right. Um, on the way back, as they re- on the return trip to UK, I was asked by my director of production, Manil decided to swing by to Belize and film a news report for a supposedly a basketball tournament they'll be holding um, in April 2020, I think 2019. Um, and at that point, I had, geographically, I had no idea where Belize was. 
Um, the only thing I knew about Belize was, I'm not sure if you remember this, um, Gangland episode by Ross Kemp yeah. on, I think, Vice, or I think it was BBC4. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing I knew about Belize, so I was in, a, I was in two charts thinking the pressure they created on that documentary was in the most safest country in the world. Um, so I had no no prior expectations apart from thinking, okay, this is going to be an interesting experience. Um, we, uh, myself and one other individual from Canada, went. Um, the only reason I think this, um, the documentary came alive was because of the characters involved in the documentary. Mm. We were very, very lucky with the presence of some of the American brothers who were organizing the tournament oh, out yeah. there and the training training they did throughout the country um so for me it was literally just going out there and just filming continuously non-stop because we didn't know what to expect which anyone who's edited before if you keep the camera rolling for too long when you come to the editing stage it becomes a nightmare because you've got so much content to go through um the best way to prepare is to have a script in mind and have a general shot list in mind which you you know stick you know stick with and hopefully it makes it easier for you in post-production but unfortunately, uh, for the Belize one, we had no uh, no game plan. We just went out there, just kept the camera rolling wherever you went. And then, you know, by all this grace, somehow we managed to put it together when he came back to an editing board. Um, the same, this very similar, very similar story with the Bangladesh documentary as well. Um, in terms of our sense of Bangladesh as to train the Bangladesh MTA team, um, I did often go regularly for the last couple of years before pre, this was pre-pandemic, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so similar questions to exactly what you've just asked me. Um, the team in Bangladesh still very eager to learn. They always asked and asked about how do you do these documentaries? Can you please, you know, show us how it's done? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's go. Let's book a train ticket to Chittagong, which is in the southeast area of Bangladesh. And we just rocked up. And then this, this documentary was essentially a training exercise. Wow. Um, each of the stories you see when we were on the boat or when we went to the village in the, in the tribal communities, wherever we went, we literally just approached people on the street and would say, can we come and film you? Um, because I'm a strong believer in the fact that everyone has a story to tell. Mm. And if not, I know obviously it helps to have good, con- uh, good you know, amazing shots and scenic and you know, photography needs to be on point. But without a story, none of that means anything. Mm. Uh, it just becomes essentially what I always say, just a very nice screensaver. Um, so it's all about the story. So I've always, I've always encouraged people just to go out there and capture stories and sometimes the stories themselves would help you tell a better, you know, um, narrative, uh, for great, you know, general audience. Uh, Asif, uh, Salams, uh, yeah. uh, I've watched the Basketball in Belize documentary and I'm halfway through the um, the Bangladesh one uh, inshallah I can finish it soon um, and both of them kind of I can imagine would be personal to you I mean I can imagine the Belize one being personal to you because the first time you were going to do something like that I think is uh, I don't get, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean in the sense that you were asked to go do a news report and it ended up being an incredible documentary. Actually, is an, is probably still on is still on Amazon Prime, right? Yep. Um, and then you got Bangladesh, which is where you're originally from as well, and that's probably got more of a personal connection um, through heritage or whatever. But um, basketball, basketball in Belize also can mean something to you because it just turned out it turned out to be something incredible. For you, which one is dearer to you, um, if that's the right way to put it, or which one do you feel more like, oh yeah, this one, I loved this one. I can imagine you love both of them, obviously, but I mean, you know, which one stands out for you more? Or is the, is the Bangladesh one too soon to say? 
Um, it's a difficult question because they both have different context to you know how they both came about. Yeah. Um, the Belize one was a you know very new experience. The Bangladesh for me because I've visited Bangladesh several times before that. Um, it was a different experience in terms of portraying it on camera. Mm-hmm. For Belize, it was a completely new experience and unknown territory which I've never been to and been thrown you know to get thrown in there with limited. Um, prior knowledge of the area yeah. um, and for it to the way it, you know the way the documentary came about obviously on the fact that it's on Amazon Prime yeah. it does have, hold a special place yeah. but Bangladesh undoubtedly because of my background and because of you know how I grew up in the UK mm-hmm. and honestly in the in the intro I think in the documentary intro where I mentioned that I've hardly I know, growing up I hardly heard anyone speak about Bangladesh mm-hmm. and one thing that always used to catch my you know would always you know get my imagination going is when Khalifa Rabi, um, the fourth Khalifa, the holiness of the Mizabayamid, may Allah rest his soul, um, whenever he used to speak about Bangladesh, sometimes in Uddha class, um, sometimes in the Bangladesh Q&A session, um, he always used to say this, and very proudly he used to say that to this day, no one has traveled Bangladesh as much as I have. Um, so this was always in the back of my mind, thinking how is it possible that no, even Bengalis, he said, no Bengalis even, uh, have traveled as much as I have. So that was a, something I would always be inspired by thinking one day, if I get a chance, I would do that. Uh, and which, to be honest, I did do after I graduated from university. I went, um, I did what white people usually do, <laughs> go backpacking for six months um, around India and Bangladesh. And yeah. I traveled extensively. Sorry, and, uh, Asif, sorry, remember that yeah. point. Um, we're just going to run, run off to the news. Um, bear yeah. with us two minutes. We'd love to carry on this conversation, but please sure, stay with sure, us. Sure. Yeah. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Salam Gamasif. Yep, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Um, Yeah, Jazakallah, thank you for um, staying with us through the news. Um, Yeah, you were saying just before before the news about how they were... No, I was just saying that the fourth caliph um, has risen down and may Allah rest his soul and may Allah, you know... Have mercy on him. Um, it was a bold statement to make for him to say that to this day, not even a Bengali has travelled as much as he has throughout yep. the country. Um, which obviously, as actually at that time growing up, having visited Bangladesh myself, you see, you know, filled me with a lot of pride. Yeah. Uh, simply because I didn't hear anyone else talk about Bangladesh, not even the family that much in a positive way, as in just to say, such a beautiful country, you should go and go and see some of the parts which no, not many people see because. Majority of the time, as you well know, that on the news and the media, especially third world countries, you mainly need to see the negative. You yeah, know, violence. The poverty, so, yeah. the poverty, the, you know, as Bangladesh was claimed as a basket case internationally by, um, I think, a American, I can't remember his name now. But yeah, so obviously that's the image they used to portray through UNICEF, Oxfam. Um, so when I traveled myself and tried to you know, follow through what Hussein was saying, I was obviously blown away myself. Yeah, and to see some of the parts of so you know that a lot of people do need to see, and as a Bengali, obviously you want to show that to the world. Yeah, so that was one of the biggest inspiration behind it, and that's one of the things I've always said to the MTV Bangladesh team that you know yeah. it was always said, get out of the studio. Um, discussion shows are great, but you know just I think you should leave discussion shows for radio, right? For TV, you need to use a visual element mm-hmm. where you can show people through visual art history to say you know, how beautiful and how amazing certain locations are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so Bangladesh obviously has that. You know, soft spot for me. So also, you know, um, the fourth caliph, may Allah have mercy on him. Also mentioned, I remember some of the audio clips where um, His Holiness was describing some of the personalities and the characteristics of uh, 
Bangladeshi people about you know their their character and what they're like. If they're really happy, they'll show you they're really happy. Um, yeah. And if they're upset, they you they you'll really see that that they're upset. When yeah. like you said, when we hear of Bangladesh, we I, for me, um, when I think of the people of Bangladesh, I don't have any negative connotations towards them. But generally, I think that I, I, I am always drawn to the fact um, of how our community, the Ahmadi Muslim community, is persecuted over there. And I generally kind of link extremists, not generally, sorry, but I, I sometimes do uh, link Bangladesh to having a community, not a massive community, but there being some extremists there in their views of Islam and how they treat um, uh, um, our community. Now, I want to hear from you whether you found uh, his holiness sentiments did you, did you experience that and in i know you also managed to meet other community members you met some hindus as well how did you find meeting those individuals and how did you find uh, the diversity uh, in comparison to what we see in the media and also in comparison to what his holiness had um, stated in regard to the character so if you recall or um, you're saying you're halfway through the documentary, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so near the end of the documentary, there is a part where Hazur actually explains the mindset of the mullahs in Bangladesh. Okay. Yeah. And he says, in general, in general, the the clerics and the religious clerics are generally are very good people. Yeah. Um, they genuinely love Islam, and the only reason they're quite anti-Islam or anti-Islam Ahmadiyya is because of the negative things they've been told. Okay. So in their mindset, they're being defensive towards Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right. So, Majority of the Majority, without some exceptions, obviously. Yep. Um, and that's very true among general Bengalis. Um, they don't have that fundamental streak in them. Um, mm. Generally speaking, Bengalis are Muslims. They're proud to be Muslims. But the common man in Bangladesh don't have this radical side to them. I, I haven't experienced that anyway. Um, the way the radical side comes into it is in the poverty-stricken areas, okay. where certain mullahs who use you know, religion as a way, you know, as a business, essentially. Um, they obviously go to madrasas and in whatever places, and that's where they, you know, create these hardline mullahs. But generally speaking, majority of Bengalis are quite rational, quite logical. They will sit there, have a conversation with you. And Huzu even says that, you know, um, there's two things Bengalis will, you know, you can win the way with. One is with love, and the other is with logic. So if you can have a rational conversation with them, they will, they will have that conversation with you. Um, I think one of the reasons why yourself and many others, on you know, especially Ahmadi Muslims, may perceive Bangladesh to have this radical streak and you know, very anti-Ahmadiyya attitude, is because of most of the footage you see on MTA mm-hmm. um, when we you know play our Muslims about persecution, when we play our you know videos about persecution, most of the footage is captured in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to understand that's over a period of 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you know, very one or two episodes that has happened over the years that's been highlighted because that's the only footage we have mm. in Pakistan. I don't think you know, there's obviously much grander scale of persecution, but you can't actually film those, or it's very you know, it's very difficult for you to film those. I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in general, my experience hasn't you know, it's exactly exactly what Hazul said. Like generally, the Bengalis have that love for Islam. The only reason some of them they do become defensive or anti-Ahmadi is because of the negative things they've heard about Ahmadis. Uh, majority of people haven't, you know, even met an Ahmadi. The Jamaat there should be much larger than it is now because it has been around since promised society time. Hmm. But generally, there's not that many Ahmadis among them. So I think we, you know, we owe it to ourselves to create, educate more people out there to create that bridge. And, and I think documentaries like this, Asif, will go a long way to 
help uh, understand, you know, what the true culture is out there. I think, you know, there were there were some inspiring stories within that documentary itself, and particularly towards the end, um, you know, when you met with your uncle, who, who sadly, uh, I believe, has uh, passed away since then. Um, and, and, you know, stories like that are definitely inspiring, um, and, and I think the, the, they'll do a lot for especially people like us, uh, you know, to, to understand to understand those people. What I find uh, quite fascinating is, you know, you the, at one point you went into quite a remote part and um, you visited uh, a family or, or a group of families. Um, how, how do you manage to sort of locate that uh, and arrange that, organise that? Um, do, do you, Is there any... Because as you said, you know, it's, it's kind of off the whim. Uh, these documentaries that are being created where you go for a specific, some other purpose and it, as part of it you, you end up creating you know an amazing documentary but those things surely do take some preparation or some communication contact pre um, pre arriving or, or something no? So are you referring to the area the tribal area? Really? Yeah tribal areas yeah, yeah. yeah. The bamboo chicken and stuff Exactly um, Yeah so the, <laughs> the way that came about was First of all, I don't know if I've already mentioned this, and this may sound like a cliche statement, but the entire documentary, anything I've ever produced or ever worked on, is purely by love grace. Uh, my actual, de- my background, my degree is in biology, biomedical, yeah. and so this is not something I've learned. So mm. when we, whenever we head out to any of these um, productions um, with the crew, I go out. We, we're constantly praying and say, Allah, we have no idea what we're doing. We're literally just winging it. Uh, you know, our intentions is this. So please help us open certain doors when we get there. So interesting when we get to. The tribal area, which is Bandarban, which is in the um, Chittagong Hill Tracks. Uh, the people, the community, the tribes that live out there, they've been cut off from the rest of Bangladesh for like the last 50, 60 years. And one of the reasons that is because they have a different language, they have a different culture, different cuisine, different lifestyle. And they're a very reserved community and they're, very, um, they're a very closed off community. So when they see externals or outsiders coming in, they'll be nice to you, but they won't speak to you or they'll keep to themselves mostly. Um, just because of the, you know, they're very simple people and they're, you know, they don't trust outsiders to, you know, you know, they don't understand what the intentions are. So the way we managed to, I don't know if this is the right word, infiltrate <laughs> into one of the villages is um, basically one of our production crews, uh, his name is Sakir from MJ Bangladesh Chief. Um, he mentioned while we were driving out there, after that like, when we get to Bangladesh, um, it might be difficult to interview people. Uh, and uh, so I have a friend who I studied with in Dhaka University back in the capital who happens to be from that community. Do you want me to give him a call and see if he's around? So I was like, yes, please um, do that because we're having no success with interviewing people on the street. I know the, the way it's edited, it seems like everyone's being friendly, everyone's <laughs> talking to us, um, but honestly, no one was interacting with us. We couldn't get anyone to give us a long interview. No one to you know, take us to their home to show us how they live. Yeah. But luckily, Sakib had, had this friend from back in university from the hostel days who happened to be in the area and he was very you know his name was Lubu if you remember he was walking with me yeah, um, yeah, yeah, the groceries. and then he was kind enough to take us into his village which was you know, very deep into the jungle and you know and once we're in there obviously once you know someone they open up to you more um, and with anyone who's been to tribal areas or very remote areas the people generally tend to be reserved but once they open up to you, they're very friendly they're very hospitable very accommodating um, so yeah, that's how it came about. Um, it was literally just Allah just opened the doors for us, and somehow, some way, we managed to get in. And once we got in, um, I have a confession to make as well. We did. Um, there was frogs out there, and they didn't see the documentary. In the documentary, we didn't include it. 
um, because we were later told maybe frogs are not <laughs> they consider as my crew yeah. um, but they did cook frogs as well and okay. um, we did you know experience that <laughs> okay. how that goes but yeah so once we're in there you have to you know submerge yourself with, with the people and no, lucky absolutely. Lucky we have and, I, and I saw that. I saw you getting stuck in and, and helping out with, uh, with, the with with their preparations. Yeah. Um, no, look, uh, I think if it, uh, once again, you know, I'd urge yeah. uh, listeners um, to, to, to really uh, take the time to, to watch this documentary. Um, and uh, again, you know, thank you for coming on to our show longer than uh, I had asked you to originally. So apologies for that. No but, worries. you know, it's been great speaking to you. Jazakallah, uh, Asif. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, guys. All the best. Um, when was that documentary made, by the way? I think it was pre-COVID. Um, and uh, you, you, you've seen parts I've of not, it. Uh, the thing is, I, I went to um, the MTA. So MTA stands for those viewers who are listening may not be aware. Muslim Television Ahmadiyya. Yes. So it's the TV station of our community. So I went to their kind of headquarters uh, and they have these like... Um, uh, you can say these documentaries framed like right. each documentary that I saw. Yeah. I saw this one hmm. is something I've never seen before so I've, I'm yet to see it but from the conversation we just had can't wait really yeah no definitely I would um, again yeah it's uh, it's um, it's weird because it you know without I don't know how to say it, again it might sound cliche but you know you re you feel like you're there and yeah. you really begin to get a taste of the culture and you know I've grown up uh with very very close Bengali friends um, and you know they've always told me about you know their experiences when they go Bangladesh and whatever and I've told them my experiences of Pakistan but actually to actually be able to sort of see it a lot closer was it's quite nice um, should we move on to our AI topic yes which is, um, with our AI with our specialist. AI Oh, wow. expert, <laughs> expert. I mean, you're expert. the one. That, you're you're the one that's using it probably the most in terms of your company, well, right? Generally, though, no, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was how this whole co this conversation started. That my company's using it a lot. Well, well I think like, every company, every using company it now, using it, and yeah. I think uh, most of us are have used it yeah, and are yeah. using it. It's part of uh, our lives, really, though, isn't it's it? It's part of our you lives can't now. Avoid it. There's no way. I mean, if you do avoid it now, it's sort of. I mean. Just look at it. Okay, so let, let's just maybe just just give the basic sort of uh, background to it in terms of understanding. So obviously, artificial intelligence AI in terms of the traditional sense when we're talking about it, we're actually looking at Google, Bing, uh, the search engines, um, certain specific patterns or coding which has been put in to give you a certain response. Okay. Then you have obviously generative AI um, which is on the other hand which is a subsection of AI is AI but it's sort of developed uh, which is a specific approach within the field of AI that focuses on creating systems that can generate new content such as text images audio and that's based on patterns learned from the training data we have put into the system uh, so that's how where you have you know generative pre-trained transformity like architecture used in chat GPT uh, you have Bard Google's Bard you have different uh, LexisNexis uh, systems which sort of learn as you go but they use the training data in order to create new models I mean I mean AI has been around for a long time yeah. so it's, it's only developed. It, 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 yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's just that now um, 
obviously it's developed into a certain way uh, uh, that now everyone can use it. For example, when chat GPT came about, everyone could use it. And, I, was and slow, uh, I was so slow finding out about this. Chat GPT. I don't know where I was, obviously, because I, I don't really use social media at all. But um, yeah, I, I was actually working on a project with someone and we were trying to find a name for this particular thing. And they're like, oh, okay, let's go on chat GPT. And I thought, what's chat GPT? And like come up with that, and then we started putting things in, and yeah. I was blown away. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. What fascinates me more than the advancements of technology in terms of what it can do for us, what good it can do for us, and help us, it's what it's what bad it can do to us, and it's yeah. what it can take away from us, which 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 fascinates me. I would say more so. I don't know much about it. I'll be honest. Um, again, I don't follow social media at all, much, uh, much at all. Um, here and there, just the Twitter, but n you know nothing else. So, I, I, again, I don't have any use or much use of uh, of these things, or, or don't, at least I don't see much. Uh, but I know that they are in every walk of life now, in every aspect within every industry, be that financial, be that medical. I mean, we've seen. Uh, you know, I saw a few weeks ago on the news. Um, the the ability to remotely perform uh, operations, so you can be in a different country uh, and you can use you know this computerized system to perform an operation on someone, and, and that's amazing, right? Um, you can get now uh, potentially you can have access to the top doctors, the top surgeons in the world. I'd say you know miles away yeah. within within yeah. within sort of you know minutes of maybe something going on i don't know yeah. maybe maybe it'll get to that yeah. stage one day but you know these are the things yeah. that are in development but when i've heard some podcasts and uh, looked into a few things there, there's also in the industry a big worry about this automation about machine learning about what detriment damage it can do to society and i hope you will as the expert, <laughs> we just stop calling I'm him. Yeah, you as the so much AI expert. They're going to reach out to him after Conduce the show. The AI expert. <laughs> um, but you know, new title for me. Thank you. What, no, but what yeah, are those concerns. I mean, what are? Of course, there's. So, whenever something blows mm. up like it has, mm. um, the difference here is that this it goes to the core. In t it, it, the AI goes to the core of sort of humanity in the sense that we built it. And now it can potentially replace us. Yeah. So that's sort of the worry. And one of the worries is that, oh, so AI machine learning or AI tools can replace, um, you know, bodies in, in, in the workplace. So, for example, doing these admin tasks no longer required because AI will do it for you. You set in a code into the computer system and it'll do all the admin work for you. So you don't need the administrators, uh, administrators anymore to do the mundane tasks same similar with um you know making or creating uh, parts or products which can all be done automated which is still being done uh, at the moment like for example you see cars car production which if you look at car production you look where there's minimal interaction uh, on a large scale so if you look in these factories you'll see that the robots are working and doing everything for you and they're only there's so there's only certain elements of it mm. that where we have interaction with the build-up to the product so the the difference here is that ai in terms of like these systems the the, the machine learning systems they are learning as they go and 
they are providing what do you mean response. That they're learning how they got. So this is what I'm saying. I, I feel like one of the biggest, um, not negatives, but I would say one of the biggest fears is just people's imagination. Because, like, for example, Skynet. no, you just said, Skynet. yes, kind of. Like, you, yeah. you, you just said that these machines are learning as they go, and then it's like, well, every talk show or morning show or breakfast show or radio show I've heard where they've spoken to an expert the same question is asked like can it get to a level where they take over <laughs> that's the people's imagination mm. so it's I don't know whether that's our imagination is our biggest kind of you know, fear or <coughs> there's um, chief, ex-chief business officer of Google X what is his name Mo Gauda or something um, he apologies we'll find his real name <laughs> we'll find his actual name uh, he gave um he has an interview recently with Stephen Bartlett. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, I haven't heard the whole thing, but basically the main premise of um, his talk, uh, his interview, is that AI is dangerous. And he says the threat is at, is imminent. And he goes, it's not 10 years, it's not 20 years. He goes, it's in the next year, in the next two years, that he feels is imminent. Um, and I, I've listened to a bit of it. And to be honest, like obviously he's the expert. He knows what he's talking about. But I still kind of can't fathom where he talks about they have a consciousness, not in the same way that we have consciousness, uh, in the spiritual sense, in the sense that, okay, we have, you know, we, we, we're here for a purpose. He goes, but he believes that robots and machines and AI can think, can feel, um, can sense the world and can freely, um, you know, behave in their, in their own manner, which like, like, like I said, I'm no, I'm no expert, but I still find it hard to fathom and hard to understand. So that's where I think the fears come from, especially when you have, you know, experts saying this. Exactly. Yeah. And, and he, I, I don't know how senior you can get then chief business officer of, of Google X. Um, and he goes, his career was all about, automation robotics ai all of that sort of stuff i mean um i, I don't know how deep we've gone into any apologies i missed like the first five or so minutes but it is it is quite um you know a, a, a topic that can be seen as scary but for me it's, it's not but this is this is what the point i made that is it scary because of our imagination or is it reality? This, and none of us will have to answer this question. But a lot of people, like for example, I've got zero knowledge on it, apart from what I've seen in movies, or I've heard on radio shows. <laughs> apart or, from Terminator. Apart from Terminator. So it's like, that, that no, but is it like... Does, so it has impact on different layers of society. So, mm -hmm. for example, I, I said the employment part already, that's quite basics. But then there's this impact on education. So... For example, you know, you need to do an essay, you, you know, you're in high school, you need to do an essay, you can put it, you can put the question into chat GPT, it will give you an essay format, it will give you a framework, you don't even need to create the content. So you won't even use your imagination to even write it, all you'll do is you'll put it into the system and it'll give you something and then you might tweak it a little bit and then you send it mm. ago, then you sort of created that content. But it's not using your imagination, it's not using your brain, it's not using your your uh, knowledge uh, in order to create that content. And that's sort of, 
I would say that that's fairly fairly dangerous in the sense that y- y- you won't develop. You won't develop as a person. It will limit yeah. us. It will limit us in our development. Yeah, exactly. In our capacity to think and to be creative. Um, it's kind of like learning math in school and then always getting a using calculator. a calculator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you know what? Uh, yeah. You know, in that same in the sense, most simplistic. You know, some ki- some kids nowadays don't know how to tell the time. Because they see it in, I've heard uh, in digital format, yeah, they, I've heard they honestly analog clock. And I remember my cousin; um, she came over a number of years ago, uh, and she at the time was maybe fifteen, fourteen, fifteen, and then we were kind of making a joke out of it. Like, oh, yeah, she can't read the time. Like we were like, I, I, I was in disbelief. I said, no, 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 no chance. I said, look at it. What is it? She look didn't know. Yeah, I said, look at it. What is it? She goes, oh, I, do, I, I can't. And she went a bit. I could see she was getting a bit embarrassed, so I, I let it go. But. Um, yeah, I mean, this is that same thing you see in a digital format. You're not bothered about the analog format. The thing but is, do I, we I kind of just have to accept that? No, because I'd that's the that's that's. So the next generation, that's how ha- they're never going to need to. Let's say, for example, these concepts of the analog clock to us, and you know, it's actually the same as um, if we look at a, gener- a couple of generations before us. Um, you know, the you know the the elderly generation. Sometimes they don't understand the use of our phones and you know paying by phone and you know they can't get out of their ways are we going to be those sort of you know in that on that level as well the reason the reason i say i I think there needs to be some basic training yeah because if you look at the and uh this is going to take the conversation a bit deep but if you look at the world and where it's heading and we hear the words world war three all the time yeah if that World War Three happens to that level, big reset. We're going, yeah. Sky it's, a big, it's a big reset. Yeah, no, it's a yeah, big reset. Yeah, yeah. So then <laughs> no like, one's going to be able to tell the time. No, <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to tell the time. What time is it? <laughs> no, but this what, what do these I'm hands saying. mean? No, but that, that's a reality, though. This is what I'm saying. And I remember the fourth caliph mentioned that um, he was asked about World War Three and said, "Well, I'm not sure about World War Three, but if it does happen to the uh, uh, what do you call it scale that with all these nuclear wars." then World War Four will be fought sticks. with sticks and stones. Mm. So it's like, that's if that happens to that level globally, then we're going to go backwards. Um, and to go backwards, it's like for someone like me who only uses these things and I've got no idea of like, what's the, how to do it, what like, the actual coding is, this and that, it's, we're going to just I, be I believe our current lost. caliph, uh, the fifth caliph, has, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, please, um, has also highlighted sort of similar things that whilst there is benefit in this, the advancement of humans over the last sort of X amount of years has been so great that this does bring an element of danger of re- reversing it to some degree, right? It was along those lines because, like Mo said, the uh, or alluded to, the over sort of reliance on these is taking away sort of our ability to sort of maybe dynamically think about things and, um, you know. Also, just to trust what, like for example, with ChatGBT, it's... Um What's the full term? Am I even saying that right? Chat GPT, yeah. Is it GBT? Yeah? G- GP. GPT. GPT, not B then. No, no. Um, <laughs> see, not saying, not, no one corrected no, me. It's not <laughs> Great Britain. And this, is, and this is my point. No, this is my point. That we can't just, like, for example, if you search something, like write an article on Wimbledon, for example, and you need to do that as an assignment, you should check your what it's come up with because you might be someone like me who's generated something wrong like chat gb i've been calling it gbt for the last 10 minutes and no one's corrected me not one of you no, said no, no it's to, yeah. so, so, so what you're referring to this is a very good point uh, and i was going to come to that but the, basically these ai um systems and chatbots are able to give you an answer regardless as in they can give you a lot of answers but 
they can hallucinate and that's what the term is the hallucinations so so prompt the is, ai can hallucinate yeah so i'll tell you so the I'm prompt done. the prompt is what you ask it and then it will give you an answer <laughs> but sometimes it will give you an answer which is completely wrong so we it, it, but it will give it will give it with such certainty that's that right. you will believe it you'll be like wow this is amazing he's saying this bot Having is a saying mental breakdown yeah it's no the the, the the bot is saying it with so much certainty that this must be true but it's actually hallucinating because if you check the information sometimes it's just made up information now there's a legal case going on where a lawyer had used ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> You're not telling one of your personal accounts, right? It's not my personal account. I, <laughs> no, just to be clear, it's not my personal account. But the lawyer had used uh, grounds from uh, an AI chatbot. And and it, the chatbot had provided him with sources, right? Sources for where the information has come from, case law. Case law in the sense that which previous cases has used this argument. And... When they, when the other side looked at the the sources and case law, they were all wrong. It was just made up. It was just made up case laws. <laughs> and oh, well. he had, and his argument was, well, you know, it was I, I got it from the I got it from the bot. So you mm. know, you can't sue me. You should be sued. <laughs> so, yeah, this is why ultimately I say this is in the same. This is the, this is the reason why I say I find it hard to 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 vision or to fathom that. AI can take over that much because even when it comes to bots, I mean, I I recently had a meeting with someone in our um, company who works with um, automation and robotics, and because my job involves like dealing with a number of different macros and stuff which generate reports, he came up to me and had a meeting and said, "Look, I can design something that can do all of what takes you three four hours in a single click." And I said, whoa, that's incredible. Right? Walk me through it. He goes, basically, we have these systems which you tell them what to do. He goes, so in your three, four hours reporting that you need to generate the report, you need to go to this spreadsheet, get data from there, put it into there. Then all of that, all of those rules and those proce- processes, he goes, we put it into system and that system will run that you will eventually, ultimately have one click and that click will run everything for you in like a millisecond yeah so these bots they help but you need to check that because yeah, yeah, yeah. what's what's happened is that in practice we use this and we have checked that it, the responses is giving for some of these bots are absolutely are completely wrong i mean even if you put fed if you even if you feed the data into these bots mm. and it gives you an answer it's not the correct one it's basically made up something of its own because it has a certain logic a pattern so that, that's very important <laughs> just but for I'm correctness gonna, yeah. just for correctness i'd like to sort of really um because i mentioned uh something that his holiness had said i just want to correctly uh read uh, what was what was actually mentioned and it was during a meeting uh, with German Ahmadi University graduates, His Holiness, in response to a question, said that if everything is left for artificial intelligence to do, humans would not have anything to do. Thus, that will cause regression and stagnation in the human intellect. So basically what, you know, similar to you know what we're referring to, that yeah. it, it's getting to a level where, and uh, and has also said, you know, there, there needs to be a way of securing, um, uh, and as you mentioned, Gudus, you know, um, that if people are turning to these sort of modern uses of technology, how do we confirm, you know, if it's correct? Um, and 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 um, 
you know, we, we are we are being told the right thing. Um, as was also mentioned that where modern technology has been a force for good, it has also been a force for evil and destruction. Such such technology has been developed that has the capability of wiping nations off the map with the press of a button. Of course, I'm referring to development of weapons of mass destruction that are capable of inflicting the most unimaginable horrors, devastation and destruction. Such weapons are being produced that have the potential to destroy not only civilizations today, but to also leave behind a legacy of misery for generations to come. Now, if you actually, even if you link those two in terms of one where AI is taking you back and regressing human intellect, that's a worry in itself. Because then are we emotionally understanding um, you know, to the level that we need to, to then make those decisions such as using weapons. And like, you know, them two linked together, again, as as, as, as His Holiness has highlighted, is, is a very sort of dangerous um, path that we could potentially be going down. Um, yeah. it, it, we can't let it replace... Human intellect, yeah. Especially when you're developing. Like, you know, as students, for example, and, I, and I've actually, I know some real examples of students who used... Um, this to complete their thesis hmm. in whatever it was. Imagine doctors and, doing and, that, and, and they got caught out. Exactly. And you know what? It's like um, you're right. If you're training to become a doctor or whatever field, and you are now um, ultimately someone's life depends on your hands, and you haven't had that particular training because you just honestly, even now, you know, and this is not to put down any doctor in any way. Even now, when I go to a GP, if I ask a question and the doctors on Google or checking online, whilst, you know, it may be a process, a correct process that they're checking their books. And for me, you know, it's that element of, I expect this person to be an expert and professional. I ought, maybe that's un an unfair way to look at it. But when we're looking at, you're right, you're absolutely right. When we're looking at advancements of technology on this level, anyone can have the answer to anything, really, yeah, yeah. without the correct understanding of it. That is, yeah, that's and one of the reasons. They say over yeah, the last yeah. hundred years, society has progressed more than it has done pre that hundred years from the from the beginning of time to that hundred year to hundred years ago and, now it's and from now to hundred years it's progressed that's been the quickest advancement of society like development of tech and whatever it is well, yeah just um, just to move on the conversation a little bit and uh, and this is a question to all of you where does AI or robots for example sit from a religious point of view like can it ever have a soul can it ever have can it ever be a to, for me, yeah, I'll, I'll, this is my take on it. The reason why, sorry, I know this religious question and the religious guy here is looking at us like, excuse me, that's for me. <laughs> I'm about to walk out <laughs> that question. But no, simply why I say no, never, is because we are created by God. Mm. We believe we're created by God. And every single building block which makes us is 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 natural and designed by God with a purpose and with 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 meaning. Whereas... When you talk about robots, machinery, AI, all of that, every single building block of that is man-made. Every single component, every part, every screw, every literally every component of that machine has been built by man. So nothing, there's no, there's no chance that a soul or consciousness can be injected into that artificial creation. Creation, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. There's nothing more I could add to that. Right. Let me come to the next question then. Then, So what about AI and chatbots or AI, just artificial intelligence, interpreting religious texts for us? Uh, do we need, for example, you know, 
we need we need we need, I need to interpret this this part of the you know a certain uh, any holy well, book. The, and where 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 the flaw in that is? They've not practiced it, or they've got no experience of practicing faith. <laughs> but would it not give you a straightforward answer, which you know, which you can just take and no? Like, but it would generate uh, from, for example, from whatever information it's been fed. It's like Google. Anything that's registered to Google, that's that what would pop up, right? But what it, what basically what it can do, so, what the possibility here would be, is that it can take different sources. So it can take all the different sources yes. on, let's say, on Google server, for example. Okay, let me. I've got an answer for that. Let me go. I've got an answer from His Holiness yeah. himself. Oh, go on. That's probably the, the best. Yeah, it <laughs> says in a re- in a recent meeting with the Al Islam website team, um, His Holiness underlined the importance of attention and responsibility when using AI tools. Hazor advised that all pertinent AI processed output related to Islam Ahmadiyyat should be confirmed for precision by professionals and intellectuals of the Jamaat. But also with so the, the point QA that you're saying, basically. yeah, but what he's saying is ultimately if you feed it all the information, it might be able to do which one's right. Yeah. Yeah. So religiously, why that won't make sense is because we even said this, His Holiness has said this, the Promised Messiah said this, that you can find loads of theories. Yeah, as Muslim, to, I'm saying to a, to, a, to, to a, a text. Yeah, you can find a theory um, that would probably be very convincing that God doesn't exist. But I could also present a theory that God does exist. Our faith isn't based on theories; it's based on experience and practice, and that's something that artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence, will never have. Yeah, and it will never be able to base its outcome on its own experience. It will only be able to uh, base its outcome on the information that it can find. So it would do the research for you, but the practice of what's right and wrong can only come when you put that theory to the test. I suppose the big, biggest example is for 13, 1400 years, we saw the interpretation of certain sort of Islamic concepts um, dated from the time of uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, which required a reformer to come and through the complete connection with God to be able to interpret those in a, in a way which was not understood prior to that um or at least on that level for you know which is what we believe um and and those interpretations came through that deep connection with god and understanding so ultimately regardless or wherever of wherever ai gets we always believe that there's a higher power that can it can never elevate itself or reach that level um so there will always at least for muslims be a reliance on god yeah. um for ultimate guidance no matter where technology takes us so uh, your question w- in regards to interpretation were you talking about like religious texts where there's an injunction in place and it uses certain metaphors and whether ai will li- will be able to kind of extrapolate the deeper meaning of it is that is that your question yeah that i mean that's one aspect of that question okay. the other aspect is um for example you know i mean i'm just taking a random but what's the definition of a muslim sort of thing like and then okay. it takes lots of information from different scholars and different uh school of thoughts uh-huh. and then it puts you gives you an answer okay. uh you know it just sort of can can it be relied upon in that sense or will it still always be your aspect and, and you always have to go to like always have to verify like Shams is saying that you know it's you, you need to verify that information from a scholar but then again it's you know it's a, it's a very the, the example I'm giving is a very difficult one because mm. you know there's so many different interpretations out there mm. uh, but for example someone who is not a Muslim 
and he just goes to it you know what's the definition of a muslim mm. and then he can just give you that answer on it so and then yeah, w- and would you be able to rely on that answer or well, for someone who's a complete novice and has absolutely no understanding of islam or is the first time they've heard of muslim islam and they go and ask gpt i don't think it will be reliable information because it will give you for example some people some muslims their their definition of being a muslim is uh believing in the finality of prophethood that's literally how they are defined you are a muslim if you believe in the finality of prophethood and even so, so much so that they will add the finality of prophethood into their kalma into their uh into their shahada which is basically the not the motto how would you just say it in english it's um basically the statement to say that you're a muslim right and they will add the finality of prophethood into that statement which is completely incorrect and it's not true um and that's not even anywhere remotely correct in terms of the arabic translation so if if there was someone who is um not a muslim and is trying to do research on um islam and they were to put it into uh chat gpt or whatever ai bot there is out there and that pulled that information then we can say we we would say as ahmadi muslims that that's categorically in- incorrect it's not true it's false um but th- and that's why you know we we would um i would say that ai and bots and these sorts of platforms would not be reliable sources of information and actually even recently there was um uh, a test done where um some teachers analyzed essays written by humans and essays written by chat gpt and they found many many flaws in the essays uh, or the articles produced by chat gpt and ultimately for me it comes down to look humans are the ones that put in the information into whatever ai whatever bot whatever platform there is that ultimately gives out whatever um yeah. information is produced from it. humans are the ones that put that in so um there there is no way that i can see or i can envision i can imagine that ai will completely take over um it's it's not something that is is still hard for me to to fathom and imagine but as i mentioned before there are professionals and experts and people that have lived their whole life in this field and for example that that guy's name i did mention correctly thankfully uh, mo gauda um ex chief business officer at google his last 3 4 years he's literally been been talking about this he's been saying that artificial intelligence is dangerous um so maybe it requires more um more investigating from me and more learning um from us to understand the you know the the deeper dangers but okay Let's move on to our final segment which is uh you know we'll be talking about the NHS strikes. Um you know as uh, as you guys know um we're sort of potentially witnessing the longest um junior doctor strike in NHS history. Um there's a face off between sort of you know the government and the British Medical Association and even though there was uh I believe a 6% um salary rise offer made I, th- i believe from what i'm seeing uh is that you know the bma has said that doctors are still in it for the long run and they will refuse to call off the strikes um we do have uh dr haris khan uh, a guest with us um who who I'll add into the conversation in just a minute just when i get um you know your your feelings both of you in the studio what 
how you feel when you know we'll go into sort of the religious aspect in in a moment but what you've what your stance is on strikes um how you feel whether they're you know beneficial whether they do anything or um yeah your general thoughts on, um, on because we the reason why I say this is because we've we've seen a lot haven't we recently in the last couple of years at least with the cost of living uh crisis that we're in at the moment near you know, teachers strikes post office strikes and trains stri- everywhere yeah. you know um, airport strikes yeah, yeah. Airport strikes, which are all also strikes, so, yeah. coming uh, throughout force. the next couple of months, and yeah. no, I, 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 I there's disruption, of course. But yeah, what do you guys think? No, it's, I mean democracy. One of the aspects of democracy uh, was always like the, the the party line is you know one of the main rights is to be able to strike in a free society, um, but. I mean, I mean, it's it's um, it's always going to cause disruption, and mm. and what's what's really sad sad about the system in that in that way is that it takes this much effort for, for example, certain organisations or certain parts, certain sectors to be heard. Um, why are they not heard before? Uh, why does it have to go to that level that it has to be a strike? Why is there not discussions? Accept uh, or listen to. Maybe they are, but why why are these discussions not happening before the strikes? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I I, I can't I don't know the details of around that. But the point is this, especially NHS strikes, and I'm just talking about NHS strikes. We clapped them during COVID. We told them they are heroes. We told them you know saved they lives. they saved our lives. They saved uh, our children, our families. And they are one of the lowest pay sectors in the, in in our in our country. I mean, that's the fact. Mm. Why is that? They are saving lives. Mm. You know, that itself for me is like I, you know I can't I can't fathom that. I just don't I, I can't take that in because these are the people standing on the front line saving our lives. Whenever you go to A and E, these people are there to serve you. They are there to help you. They are having the night shifts, which are really difficult. Imagine having a night shift and trying to save someone's life. Someone's coming in bleeding and you're like, oh my God, you know, 4 a.m. in the morning. And you're mm. like, so th- those things are like that. I can't understand why there is such a disparity be- in pay, especially uh, between these services uh, and other services, for example, financial services. Well, you know what? Let, let, let's bring in Dr. Haris Khan. Um, welcome, Assalamualaikum. Welcome to the show. Um, can you can you hear us, Dr. Khan? Yeah, thank you for joining us. Let's get your thoughts um, on 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 what's happening at the moment and what you you know what you what you feel the disruption is doing also uh, to things. Whilst whilst I completely and uh, agree with uh, Gadusi's point that actually in society it's unfortunate. Um, and this may rock a few nerves. It's unfortunate that we see uh, in the financial world, you know, such high salaries. Um, but then, in 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 ratio, in comparison, those who are at the front line doing those jobs which are keeping us alive, unfortunately, are not quite hitting um, anywhere near that. In cases, yeah, no, absolutely. I think first of all, I think let's just address why the strikes are going on. So, I'm sure you're all aware in red and papers that. Since 2008 to now, doctors have suffered a, a pay cut of up to about 26%. Um, if you combine that with the cost of living crisis, as you guys mentioned, um, and combining the kind of long um, and demanding working hours, whether it's physically or mentally, um, 
for junior doctors and then in combination that they're struggling to pay their day-to-day bills. I think it's an amalgamation of all these things which is causing kind of junior doctors to come forward and, and strike. Um, for the last kind of 18 to 20 years or since 2008, um, I think junior doctors have always had the element of goodwill and doctors are always seen as ambassadors for kind of trust and um, people who are generally people of good character in, in, in society. So I think it's been overlooked for that period of time. Hmm. Uh, and now it's obviously caught up with us. So that is what's causing tensions to go through the roof. Um, in terms of the strikes itself, as you said, unfortunately, it is the disruption um, to patient care, um, elective and kind of um, other procedures that happen. For example, if someone is meant to come in for an elective uh, operation or have a knee replacement or just general day-to-day appointments, these are going to be put um, and de- um, put back and delayed by a few weeks to months, obviously, or cause disruption. But I think in terms of what um, the doctors are saying is that the the health secretary and, and the parliament and the government are not coming together and putting forward a figure which is kind of um, equal to the amount of um, pay cut that the junior doctors have suffered. So as you said earlier, which is when I started to say, 5% pay rise, but unfortunately that's not going to cut um, the actual amount of do- um, pay that doctors have been kind of losing out on since 2008. And apologies, excuse my ignorance, is there a rate which has been set out by the BMA which they would be satisfied with and uh, call the strikes off. Is there something that's been put forward as a counteroffer? So I think in terms of, like you said, the issue is that discussions have been minimal and we have been calling the health secretary and um, other kind of people in the government to come together and sit together with the junior doctors. Um, and in, in terms of the 35% figure, it's not expected to be a one um, kind of one uh, it's, amount. It's phased, right? Yeah. Over. Over a, over a year, for example, they can. We're amenable to having this discussion over, say, a period of four or five years, so it's an incremental increase in pay, um, as opposed to just a one one lump sum amount of thirty five percent. But you know, so <clears throat> Rishi Sunak uh, yesterday, when made the statement, said that they're not going to budge anymore. They're they're, they're not mm-hmm. moving, and their um, increase is final. If he's made that. Um, where where do we go from where do we go from there then? He seemed quite adamant and quite stubborn in his in his statement that he's not going to be moving or the government is not going to be moving on their increase and that they should just take it. Uh, do you feel that these strikes um, and these walkouts will then make a make a difference? Do you think that Rishi Sunak will go back on his word or the government will go back on their word and think, okay, cool, no, let's increase it a bit more periodically, let's try and do something better? Um, do you think there's a chance for that? I think it's difficult to say, right? So right now we're on the fourth strike and each strike has been getting incrementally longer. Um, so now the strike that's currently going on is a five-day strike um, in terms of the actual impact on the day-to-day public and population, it's having a huge impact. And consultants are having to cover the front doors, um, even on the wards, even the consultants are covering. Generally, patients will receive care, which is not as optimal as it would be if junior doctors are around as well, because you've got a whole kind of um, um, an army of doctors here just to kind of make sure everything's dealt with in, a, in an appropriate manner and patients receive uh, care um, appropriately. Um, so I think longer term, I, I believe that the BMA will probably continue with the strikes. The strikes will get longer and longer and it will come to a point where the NHS will be completely crippled and at a standpoint, uh, as if it isn't already. Um, also, what is happening is a lot of doctors are leaving, going to other parts of the world. Australia, New Zealand are offering great salaries for doctors. A lot of doctors I know personally are leaving to go to Australia. And as we know already, um, there is a shortage of 
uh, junior doctors and doctors in the NHS itself now. So unfortunately, long term heading to complete crises and we're already struggling as it is. There was also something that came out recently where uh, the government are planning to try and um, increase the number of people going to uh, going into medicine, right? I think they said they were going to do something, I can't remember the plan or what the point was, but they, they said that they want to increase the number of students um, going into medicine, uh, at the number of doctors that are basically churned out of uh, our universities. Uh, let's see what happens with that. But also I heard that there's also a con- consultant walkout as well, a consultant strike. What are they fighting for? Are they they, are they not paid fairly or what, what, what is their argument? Unless I've got it completely wrong. Yeah, you're right. So essentially um, this strike will come to an end on the, the 18th for, for junior doctors and then the consultants will go on strike from the 20th to the 22nd. Um, bear in mind, um, consultants are specialists who if you to get to a consultant post takes probably close to 16 17 years of training including medical school right mm-hmm. you've accrued 100, 100 more than 100,000 pounds of debt you've made sacrifices in terms of your your own family life personal life kind of physical mental well-being when you're doing speciality training um the way it works you you'll probably laugh at this and you how ridiculous it is so essentially um every year doctors have to move around in terms of in their training year so for example if someone is in say, the, the area of Kent, Surrey, and Sussex. So they could move from anywhere to, say, where I'm from, to somewhere like Brighton or somewhere like, I don't know, Margate in Kent, and they get moved around as part of their training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's impossible for them to kind of set up a base, have a, have a family house. Imagine you're commuting an hour and a half, two hours a day because you don't know where you're going to be. You don't get, these things don't get announced. So there's multiple things and factors and a lot of kind of dedication that goes into becoming a consultant. When, when you start off as a consultant, People think you're taking in more than six figures easily, but unfortunately, the starting salary consultant is close to something between seventy-five thousand pounds, and that's that's pre-tax, right? So um, a lot of times, consultants, and when you go into hospital, you go in um, expecting top-level care, and you want a consultant who's there, who's obviously got the experience, and with that comes a lot of responsibility. You're putting lives in people's hands, and ultimately, the decisions are being made for people day in day out, which will affect their quality of life and, and longer-term health. So you want to pay for responsibility, right? For example, if you look in a company, if, like I said, in finance, the CEO, he gets a certain amount of money because there's a responsibility associated with it. He's expected to bring certain revenue to the company. So, unfortunately, it's it, we're, in a, we're in a world now where obviously money is the most important thing and human life and health isn't put on a pedestal as high as that. So, unfortunately, that is why sometimes consultants aren't paid what they actually are deserving and they're going to strike as well because they have had enough with everything that's going on with the NHS as well. No, I completely agree. And just, just lastly, what are the sort of sentiments uh, amongst sort of your peers and, you know, the chats at the coffee table at the moment? Is it a bit of an awkward one where, you know, obviously patient care is, is the utmost uh, importance, but at the same time, things just aren't changing. So, uh, you know, how, how are the feelings uh, on the inside? Um, you know, are some people giving up or... You know, people want to carry on their strikes and just just be interested to to hear how how it is. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things, as you said, because it's come to the fourth strike. Unfortunately, not much headway has been made. Um, I think there's a combination of people um, and spirits are kind of. Um, some people have higher spirits. Some people are struggling more. And like you said, the other thing that is also happening, unfortunately, is that because of the strikes, the the trust or the hospital where you're working at, they're not paying junior doctors for for those strikes, right? So in terms of if you look at a newly graduated doctor who is getting paid up to £14 an hour, 
and they're already struggling with the cost of doing crisis. A lot of doctors probably can't even strike now because of the financial implications it has and struggling to pay their rent and bills. Hmm. So, as you said, I think, unfortunately, not much headway is being made here. Yeah. Um, there needs to come to a point where there needs to be some sort of agreement between the government and, and the, and the yeah. BMA, uh, and a reasonable agreement. As we said, I, I don't think doctors are going to make ridiculous demands. We, most doctors and the BMA is amenable to having a discussion yeah. and incremental increases in pay year by year where it catches up to um, what the pay was in 2008 and due to the inflation, you get a fair amount of pay. But it's, yeah. I think it's just needs to be a, a sit down, an honest sit-down discussion at the table um, yeah. and go from there. Just, a, just a question. Um, are these, you're saying that most of the, some of these doctors can't strike uh, because of their financial situation. What's the situation in terms of pay during strike? Do they get paid whilst they're striking or what's the situation with that? No, you, you don't get paid when you're striking. Are there no no rules regarding certain days are paid or all all, all days are non-paid? So any, any day you're striking, you wouldn't get paid for. So if you're, not, if you're striking for five days, you wouldn't get paid for any of those days. Okay, that's good to know. Dr. Ayes Khan, thank you very much for taking out your time um, to to be on our show. Thank you. No problem, Zaki. Is a, as we said, you know, the I won't pull out the stats now, but the effect that these strikes do have on society is, um, you know, it's immense, um, and you know, we're we're only geared up for more coming across the next sort of couple of months. Um, I suppose we're coming towards the end of our uh, show now. We, we hope you've uh, enjoyed your time with us, uh, and do join us again uh, same time uh, next week. I will just end. Um, you know, a couple of sort of religious points, uh, I suppose, more of the religious side in terms of strikes. And His Holiness, the fourth caliph uh, of the Muslim community, highlighted two points um, when it come, when it comes to sort of strikes and the need. Um, one, he highlighted that actually strikes in, in their very nature highlight that the government, uh, and it sort of goes back to the point we were making earlier, the government is not fulfilling, uh, you know, the needs uh, of its people. Um, it, it, you know, the government itself needs to be sensitive uh, to the needs of society. And I think it also goes back to what you were highlighting, that actually, why does it take strikes for us to, you know, actually highlight and understand that there, there's a crisis and something's not right. So the government needs to sort of uh, be aware, or they are aware of it, or be, 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 be in a position to take action. As we mentioned, and as uh, Osman mentioned earlier, um, you know, with Hazrat Umar uh, in his time walking around at night to see if anyone is in need, and that's the sort of um, level uh, that that of justice and, and care that we expect from um, from 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 those those in those positions. And the second point that was made was that according to Islam, uh, governments and people, and it, and, it, and it goes with also sort of you know your. Uh, your households and whatever position you've been put in, you're responsible in the eyes of God. Um, and he said that they are not seen as the Malik, uh, but they are seen as the Amin, uh, entrusted, you know, entrusted with responsibility of safekeeping uh, and safeguarding, um, safekeeping and, and, and being able to fulfill, fulfill the needs uh, of those who they have been um, put in place of to, to fulfill. So um, these are sort of, I suppose goes back to the initial point we made that if we live in sort of a just society, uh, justice should always prevail. Thank you for joining us here at SML uh, and we will 
see you again. Uh, be with you again next week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.